Book the Seventh, Part Two of Birds of Prey by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: Mrs. Sheldon Accepts Her Destiny. Miss Halliday had an interview with her mother that evening in Mrs. Sheldon's dressing room, while that lady was preparing for rest, with considerable elaboration of detail in the way of hair brushing and putting away of neck ribbons and collars and trinkets in smart little boxes and handy little drawers all more or less odorous from the presence of dainty satin-covered sachets the sachets and the drawers and boxes and trinkets were mrs sheldon's best anchorage in this world such things as these were the things that made life worth endurance for this poor weak little woman and they were more real to her than her daughter because more easy to realize the beautiful light-hearted girl was a being whose existence had always been something of a problem for georgina sheldon she loved her after her own feeble fashion and would have jealousy asserted her superiority over every other daughter in the universe but the power to understand her or to sympathize with her had not been given to that narrow mind the only way in which Mrs. Sheldon's affection showed itself was unquestioning indulgence and the bestowal of frivolous gifts, chosen with no special regard to Charlotte's requirements, but rather because they happened to catch Mrs. Sheldon's eye as they glittered or sparkled in the windows of Bayswater repositories. Mr. Sheldon happened to be dining out on this particular evening. He was a guest at a great city feast to which some of the richest men upon change had been bidden so miss halliday had an excellent opportunity for making her confession poor georgie was not a little startled by the avowal my darling lotta she screamed do you think your papa would ever consent to such a thing i think my dear father would have consented to anything likely to secure my happiness mamma the girl answered sadly she was thinking how different this crisis in her life would have seemed if the father she had loved so dearly had been spared to counsel her i was not thinking of my poor dead first husband said georgie this numbering of her husband's was always unpleasant to charlotte it seems such a very business-like mode of description to be applied to the father she so deeply regretted i was thinking of your stepfather," continued mrs sheldon he would never consent to your marrying Mr. Hawkehurst, who really seems to have nothing to recommend him, except his good looks and an obliging disposition with regard to orders for theatres. I am not bound to consult my stepfather's wishes. I only want to please you, Mamma. But, my dear, I cannot possibly consent to anything that Mr. Sheldon disapproves. Oh, Mamma, dear kind Mamma, do have an opinion of your own for once in a way. I dare say Mr. Sheldon is the best possible judge of everything connected with the stock exchange and the money market. But don't let him choose a husband for me. Let me have your approval, Mamma, and I care for no one else. I don't want to marry against your will, but I am sure you like Mr. Hawkehurst. Mrs. Sheldon shook her head despondingly. It is all very well to like an agreeable young man as an occasional visitor, she said especially when most one's visitors are middle-aged city people but it is a very different thing when one's only daughter talks of marrying him i can't imagine what can have put such an idea as marriage into your head 
it is only a few months since you came home from school and i fancied that you would have stopped with me for years before you thought of settling miss halliday made a wry face dear mamma she said i don't want to settle that is what one's housemaid says isn't it when she talks of leaving service and marrying some young man from the baker's or the grocer's valentine and i are not in a hurry to be married i am sure for my own part i don't care how long our engagement lasts i only wish to be quite candid and truthful with you mamma and i thought it a kind of duty to tell you that he loves me and that i love him very dearly these last words were spoken with extreme shyness mrs sheldon laid down her hairbrushes while she contemplated her daughter's blushing face those blushes had become quite a chronic affection with miss halliday of late but good gracious me charlotte she exclaimed growing peevish in her sense of helplessness who is to tell mr sheldon there is no necessity for mr sheldon to be enlightened yet a while mamma it is to you i owe duty and obedience not to him pray keep my secret kindest and most indulgent of mothers and and ask valentine to come and see you now and then ask him to come and see me charlotte you must know very well that i never invite any one to dinner except at mr sheldon's wish i am sure i quite tremble at the idea of a dinner there is such trouble about the waiting and such dreadful uncertainty about the cooking and if one has it all done by birch's people one cook gives warning next morning added poor georgie with a dismal recollection of recent perplexities i am sure i often wish myself young again in the dairy at highly farm making matrimony cakes for a tea-party with a ring and a fourpenny piece hidden in the middle i'm sure the highly tea-parties were pleasanter than mr sheldon's dinners with those solemn city people who can't exist without clear turtle and red mullet ah mother dear our lives were altogether happier in those days i delight in the yorkshire tea-parties and the matrimony cakes and all the talk and laughter about the fourpenny piece in the ring i remember getting the fourpenny piece at newhall last year and that means that one is to die an old maid you know and now i am engaged as to the dinners mamma mr sheldon may keep them all for himself and his city friends valentine is the last person in the world to care for clear turtle if you will let him drop in sometimes of an afternoon say once a week or so when you and i and diana are sitting at our work in the drawing-room and if you will let him hand us our cups at our five o'clock tea he will be the happiest of men he adores tea you will let him come won't you dear oh mamma i feel just like a servant who asks to be allowed to see her young man will you let my young man come to tea once in a way well charlotte i'm sure i don't know said mrs sheldon with increasing helplessness it's really a very dreadful position for me to be placed in quite appalling is it not mamma but then i suppose it is a position that people afflicted with daughters must come to sooner or later if it were the mere civility of asking him to tea pursued poor georgie heedless of this flippant interruption i am sure i should be the last to make any objection indeed i am under a kind of obligation to mr hawkehurst for his polite attention has enabled us to go to the theatres very often when your papa would not have thought of buying tickets 
but then you see lotta the question in point is not his coming to our five o'clock tea which seems really a perfect mockery to any one brought up in yorkshire but whether you are to be engaged to him dear mamma that is not a question at all for i am already engaged to him but charlotte i do not think i could bring myself to disobey you dear mother continued the girl tenderly and if you tell me of your own free will and acting on your conviction that i am not to marry him i must bow my head to your decision however hard it may seem but one thing is quite certain mamma i have given my promise to valentine and if i do not marry him i shall never marry at all and then the dreadful augury of the fourpenny piece will be verified miss halliday pronounced this determination with a decision of manner that quite overawed her mother it had been the habit of georgie's mind to make a feeble protest against all the mutations of life but in the end to submit very quietly to the inevitable and since valentine hawkehurst's acceptance of charlotte's future husband seemed inevitable she was fain to submit in this instance also valentine was allowed to call at the lawn and was received with a feeble half plaintive graciousness by the lady of the house he was invited to stop for the five o'clock tea and availed himself rapturously of his delightful privilege his instinct told him what gentle hand had made the meal so dainty and homelike and for whose pleasure the phantasmal pieces of bread and butter usually supplied by the trim parlour-maid had given place to a salver loaded with innocent delicacies in the way of pound-cake and apricot-jam mr hawkehurst did his uttermost to deserve so much indulgence he scoured london in search of free admissions for theatres hunting ragamuffins and members of the cyber club and other privileged creatures at all their places of resort he watched for the advent of novels adapted to georgie's capacity lively records of croquet and dressing and love-making from smart young amazons in the literary ranks or deeply interesting romances of the sensation school with at least nine deaths in the three volumes and a comic housemaid or a contumacious buttons to relieve the gloom by their playful waggeries he read tennyson or owen meredith or carefully selected bits from the works of a younger and wilder bard while the ladies worked industriously at their prie chairs or berlin brioches or shetland corvipeds as the case might be the patroness of a fancy fair would scarcely have smiled approvingly on the novel effects in crochet at tricoter produced by miss halliday during these pleasant lectures the rose will come wrong she said piteously and tennyson's poetry is so very absorbing mr hawkehurst showed himself to be possessed of honourable not to say delicate feelings in his new position the gothic villa was his paradise and the gates had been freely opened to admit him whensoever he chose to come georgie was just the sort of person from whom people take ells after having asked for inches and once having admitted mr hawkehurst as a privileged guest she would have found it very difficult to place any restriction upon the number of his visits happily for this much perplexed matron charlotte and her lover were strictly honourable mr hawkehurst never made his appearance at the villa more than once in the same week 
though the once a week or so asked for by charlotte might have been stretched to a wider significance when valentine obtained orders for the theatre he sent them by post scrupulously refraining from making the excuse for a visit that was all very well when i was a freebooter he said to himself only admitted on sufferance and liable to have the door shut in my face any morning but i am trusted now and i must prove myself worthy of my future mother-in-law's confidence once a week one seventh day of unspeakable happiness bliss without alloy the six other days are very long and dreary but then they are only the lustreless setting in which that jewel the seventh shines so gloriously now if i were waller what verses i would sing about my love alas i am only a commonplace young man and can find no new words in which to tell the old sweet story if the orders for stalls and private boxes were not allowed to serve as an excuse for visits they at least necessitated the writing of letters and no human being except a lover would have been able to understand why such long letters must needs be written about such a very small business the letters secured replies and when the order sent was for a box mr hawkehurst was generally invited to occupy a seat in it ah what did it matter on those happy nights how hackneyed the plot of the play how bald the dialogue how indifferent the acting it was all alike delightful for those two spectators for a light that shone neither on earth nor sky brightened everything they looked on when they sat side by side and during all these pleasant afternoons at the villa or evenings at the theatre diana paget had to sit by and witness the happiness which she had dreamed might some day be hers it was a part of her duty to be present on these occasions and she performed that duty punctiliously she might have made excuses for absenting herself but she was too proud to make any such excuses am i such a coward as to tell a lie in order to avoid a little pain more or less if i say i have a headache and stay in my own room while he is here will the afternoon seem any more pleasant or any shorter to me the utmost difference would be the difference between a dull pain and a sharp pain and i think the sharper agony is easier to bear having argued with herself thus miss paget endured her weekly martyrdom with spartan fortitude what have i lost she said to herself as she stole a furtive glance now and then at the familiar face of her old companion what is this treasure the loss of which makes me seem to myself such an abject wretch only the love of a man who is at his best is not worthy of this girl's pure affection and at his worst must have been unworthy even of mine but then at his worst he is dearer to me than the best man who ever lived upon this earth chapter three mr hawkehurst and mr george sheldon come to an understanding there was no such thing as idleness for valentine hawkehurst during these happy days of his courtship the world was his oyster and that oyster was yet unopened for some years he had been hacking and hewing the shell thereof with the sword of the freebooter to very little advantageous effect he now set himself seriously to work with the pickaxe of the steady growing laborer he was a secessionist from the great army of adventurers he wanted to enroll himself in the ranks of the respectable the plotters the ratepayers the simple citizens who love their wives and children 
and go to their parish church on Sundays. He had an incentive to steady industry, which had hitherto been wanting in his life. He was beloved, and any shame that came to him would be a still more bitter humiliation for the woman who loved him. He felt that the very first step in the difficult path of respectability would be a step that must separate him from Captain Paget. But just now separation from that gentleman seemed scarcely advisable. If there was any mischief in that Ullerton expedition, any collusion between the captain and the Reverend Goodge, it would assuredly be well for Valentine to continue a mode of life which enabled him to be tolerably well informed as to the movements of the slippery Horatio. In all the outside positions of life expedience must ever be the governing principle, and expedience forbade any immediate break with Captain Paget. "'Whatever you do, keep your eye upon the captain,' said George Sheldon, in one of many interviews all bearing upon the Haygarth succession. "'If there's any underhand work going on between him and Philip, you must be uncommonly slow of perception if you can't ferret it out. I am very sorry you met Charlotte Halliday in the north, for of course Phil must have learned of your appearance in Yorkshire, and that will set him wondering at any rate, especially as he will no doubt have heard the Dorking story from Paget. He pretended he saw you leave town the day you went to Ullerton, but I'm half inclined to believe that was only a trap. I don't think Mr. Sheldon has heard of my appearance in Yorkshire yet. Indeed, Miss Charlotte doesn't care to make a confidant of her stepfather, I suppose. Keep her in that mind, Hawkehurst. If you play your cards well, you ought to be able to get her to marry you on the quiet. I don't think that would be possible. In fact, I'm sure Charlotte would not marry without her mother's consent, answered Valentine thoughtfully. And, of course, that means my brother Philip's consent exclaimed george sheldon with contemptuous impatience what a slow bungling fellow you are hawkehurst here's an immense fortune waiting for you and a pretty girl in love with you and you dawdle and deliberate as if you're going to the dentist to have a tooth drawn you've fallen into a position that any man in london might envy and you don't seem to have the smallest capability of appreciating your good luck well perhaps i am rather slow to realize the idea of my good fortune answered valentine still very thoughtfully you see in the first place i can't get over a shadowy kind of feeling with regard to that hagarthian fortune it is too far away from my grasp too large too much of the stuff that dreams and novels are made of and in the second place i love miss halliday so fondly and so truly that I don't like the notion of making my marriage with her any part of the bargain between you and me. Mr. Sheldon contemplated his confederate with unmitigated disdain. Don't try that sort of thing with me, Hawkehurst, he said. That sentimental dodge may answer very well with some men, but I'm about the last to be taken in by it. You are playing fast and loose with me, and you want to throw me over, as my brother Phil would throw me over if he got the chance i'm not playing fast and loose with you replied valentine too disdainful of mr sheldon for indignation i have worked for you faithfully and kept your secret honourably when i had every temptation to reveal it you drove your bargain with me and i have performed my share of the bargain to the letter 
but if you think i'm going to drive a bargain with you about my marriage with miss halliday you are very much mistaken that lady will marry me when she pleases but she will not be entrapped into a candlestein marriage for your convenience oh that's your ultimatum is it mr joseph surface said the lawyer biting his nails fiercely and looking askant at his ally with angry eyes i wonder you don't wind up by saying that the man who could trade upon a virtuous woman's affection for the advancement of his fortune deserves to get it hot as our modern slang has it then i am to understand that you decline to participate in matters i most certainly do and the haygarth business is to remain in abeyance while miss halliday goes through the tedious formula of sentimental courtship i suppose so huh, that is unpleasant for me why should you make the advancement of miss halliday's claims contingent on her marriage why not assert her rights at once because i will not trust my brother philip the day that you show me the certificate of your marriage with charlotte halliday is the day on which I shall make my first move in this business. I told you the other day that I would rather make a bargain with you than with my brother. And what kind of bargain do you expect to make with me when Miss Halliday is my wife? I'll tell you, Valentine Hawkehurst, replied the lawyer, squaring his elbows upon his desk in his favorite attitude, and looking across the table at his coadjutor. I like to be open and above board when I can, and I'll be plain with you in this matter i want a clear half of john haygarth's fortune and i think that i've a very fair claim to that amount the money can only be obtained by means of the documents in my possession and but for me that money might have remained till doomsday unclaimed and unthought of by the descendant of matthew haygarth look at it which way you will i think you will allow that my demand is a just one i don't say that it is unjust though it certainly seems a little extortionate replied valentine however if charlotte were my wife and were willing to cede half the fortune i am not the man to dispute the amount of your reward when the time comes for bargain driving you will not find me a difficult person to deal with and when may i expect your marriage with miss halliday asked george sheldon rapping his hard fingernails upon the table with suppressed impatience since you elect to conduct matters in the grand style and must wait for mamma's consent and papa's consent and goodness knows what else in the way of absurdity i suppose the delay will be for an indefinite space of time i don't know about that i'm not likely to put off the hour in which i shall call that dear girl my own i asked her to be my wife before i knew she had the blood of matthew haygarth in her veins and the knowledge of her claim to this fortune does not make her one whit the dearer to me penniless adventurer as i am if poetry were at all in your line mr sheldon you might know that a man's love for a good woman is generally better than himself he may be a knave and a scoundrel and yet his love for that one perfect creature may be almost as pure and perfect as herself that's a psychological mystery out of the way of gray's inn isn't it if you'll oblige me by talking common sense for about five minutes you may devote your powerful intellect to the consideration of psychological mysteries for a month at a stretch exclaimed the aggravated lawyer oh don't you see how i struggle to be hard-headed and practical cried valentine but a man who is head over and ears in love finds it rather hard to bring all his ideas to the one infallible grindstone 
you ask me when I am to marry Charlotte Halliday. Tomorrow, if our fates smile upon us, Mrs. Sheldon knows of our engagement and consents to it, but in some manner under protest. I am not to take my dear girl away from her mother for some time to come. The engagement is to be a long one. In the meantime, I am working hard to gain some kind of position in literature, for I want to be sure of an income before I marry, without reference to John Haygarth, and I am a privileged guest at the villa. But my brother Phil has been told nothing? Nothing as yet. My visits are paid while he is in the city, and as I often went to the villa before my engagement, he is not likely to suspect anything when he happens to hear my name mentioned as a visitor. And do you really think he is in the dark, my brother Philip? who can turn a man's brains inside out in half an hour's conversation. Mark my words, Valentine Hawkehurst, that man is only playing with you as a cat plays with a mouse. He used to see you and Charlotte together before you went to Yorkshire, and he must have seen the state of the case quite as plainly as I saw it. He has heard of your visits to the villa since your return, and has kept a close account of them, and made his own deductions, depend upon it and some day, while you and Miss Pretty Miss Charlotte are enjoying your fool's paradise, he will pounce upon you as a puss pounces on poor Mousie. This was rather alarming, and Valentine felt that it was very likely to be correct. Mr. Sheldon may play the part of puss as he pleases, he replied after a brief pause for deliberation. This is a case in which he dare not show his claws. He has no authority to control Miss Halliday's actions. Perhaps not, but he would find means for preventing her marriage if it was to his interest to do so. He is not your brother, you see, Mr. Hawkehurst, but he is mine, and I know a good deal about him. His interest may not be concerned in hindering his stepdaughter's marriage with a penniless scapegrace. He may possibly prefer such a bridegroom as less likely to make himself obnoxious by putting awkward questions about poor Tom Halliday's money every sixpence of which he means to keep of course if his cards are packed for that kind of marriage he'll welcome you to his arms as a son-in-law and give you his benediction as well as his stepdaughter so i think if you can contrive to inform him of your engagement without letting him know of your visit to yorkshire it might be a stroke of diplomacy he might be glad to get rid of the girl and might hasten on the marriage of his own volition he might be glad to get rid of the girl. In the ears of Valentine Hawkehurst, this sounded rank blasphemy. Could there be anyone upon this earth, even a Sheldon, incapable of appreciating the privilege of that divine creature's presence? End of Book the Seventh, Part Two